a Podcast One production. Politicians are an interesting bunch, aren't they? I'd like to think they all start out meaning well to help us, but along the way, something happens. Now, perhaps it's power or ego or a PR team. They appear to morph into something else entirely. I'm Adam Peacock, and on this episode of Peacock Politics, I want to find out who our politicians really are and what they truly believe in behind closed doors. Why do we get the feeling we're not seeing the full picture when the cameras are rolling? And how does it impact the way our country is governed if a politician's own ideals are so heavily compromised by the ideals of their party? To find out, I'm going to talk to a man who's been around politicians most of his working life, and it's been some working life. Barry Cassidy is considered a legend of political journalism in this country. He was so good at his job, a Prime Minister of all people, Bob Hawke in the 80s, convinced him to quit and come work for him. Apart from those years inside the tent with Hawke, for decades he's written about politics and hosted countless shows on Channel 10 and ABC grilling, and I mean grilling politicians. It's a sport in itself almost. Now, Barry, thank you for your time. I'm counting on you here because I reckon if anyone can cut through the BS a politician can serve up, it's you. (laughs) We'll see how we go. (laughs) Being close to them, um, is it a fascinating study in human interaction and behaviour? It is certainly that, and... You see politicians um, in the best of times and the worst of times, and, and that's what makes it so fascinating. I mean, of course, um, you know, they can cruise along um, when they're getting the easy ball, and uh, as anybody can, uh, anybody can in any occupation or sport. Um, it's when they come under pressure um, that they're really tested, and, and that, that's when I kind of um, I really focus on them. And election, there's nothing like an election campaign, of course, to add to that pressure, you know, dials it up to 11, and, and you really start to see the, uh, uh, the, the genuine politician. But look, there are many and varied people, just as there are in all walks of life, um, and uh, I think that's what makes it so fascinating because at the end of the day, they're just as real as everybody else. Yeah, so you've got your normal ones, your different ones, your indifferent ones, and ones you'd never want to sit next to on a bus? Uh, yes, uh, there are some that you uh, would avoid at all costs. Um, unfortunately, in the business that I'm in, um, with a television program that requires a guest every Sunday, and that's about uh, 46 guests a year, sometimes we can't avoid the boring ones, and you just know in advance that they're going to kill the ratings. But you've, you've, you've got a kind of a, almost an obligation to invite them on occasionally because they hold significant portfolios. From what you see when they enter Parliament, politicians, are they all well-meaning and they're all in it for the right reasons? No. Um, Some of them are just in it um, for the ego. Uh, Some of them are in it because they're just ideologically driven and I don't mean that in the best of, of terms. I, I think sometimes it, it distorts them. So, look, there, there are those who, who are in it for themselves. Uh, there are those who just enjoy the power, uh, that, that they're so ideologically blinkered that they come in just to ensure that the world is not uh, framed in the way that they... <laughs> to ensure that it's framed in the way that they see it. Um, but then there are others, I think, in the majority, and the majority do go in because they see it as a genuine public service and they think they can make a difference. Um, But the bottom line is, before they go into it, they must think they're good at it. They must think that they can handle it. And uh, otherwise, they they wouldn't take it on. And so there has to be be quite a solid ego, I think, behind that to make that judgment in the first place. But there are good people involved. Like we've started out here making it sound like they're all ego-driven, you know what's, but there are good people involved. There are some good people involved, but the advice that I've always given to people, especially those 
sort of younger journalists who are tempted to go and work for a politician because they have a particular fascination for that person or they line up ideologically or whatever, I'm afraid the advice I give them is they'll always let you down. And I mean that quite genuinely. Um, and I think almost always they will. Like you, you go in there and you think this person represents something or other and then suddenly they're tested on an issue that really matters to you and you see how weak they can be under pressure, uh, how in the end they fail to do a simple thing and that is just do what's right. But at some stage in, in the career of almost every politician, they fail to do that. They fail to do just do what's right. What they do is they take the easy political way out and, and they squib it. And so that's my advice to these people when, when they think about a career in, in politics, just expect that to happen, that at some stage along the way, they'll let you down. Did Bob Hawke let you down when you went to work with him? What was it, five years that you went to work with him while he was Prime Minister? Uh, a little under four years. Um, look, there were, there, were, there were issues along the way that annoyed me, but they weren't, it wasn't about me in any case. Um, it, it was about Bob Hawke's agenda and, and, um, and I guess the, the government's agenda overall. But he never let me down on, on a big one and, and sometimes genuinely excited me, pleased me. I'll, I'll give you the, the, the example of the one day that I think had the most profound impact on me and right to this day was when John Howard um, talked about reducing Asian immigration. He wasn't talking about just reducing immigration, but specifically Asian immigration. So after all those years, Australia was about to have, if he had his way, a discriminatory immigration policy. And Hawke got his advisors together and one or two of them, and particularly the pollsters, said to him, Bob, be very careful about this. Uh, this issue might bite out there, so tread warily. And he said, I will never, ever contemplate a discriminatory immigration policy. And then somebody said, but hang on, hang on, public opinion might be against you. And he said, what I want to know from you guys, what do I need to say to turn them around? And it was at that moment that that, that gave me greatest pride in him because he wasn't about to take the advice that he was going to get a political hit. He wasn't about to take advice that this was going to be tough. All he wanted to know is, what do I need to say to change people's minds about, about this kind of thing? So that, that, was, a, that was a great moment. But um, th look, there were, other, there were other times, it was just at the edges, you know, no, nothing uh, particularly serious. But of course, um, of course, they're going to irritate you at times. They're going to take certain policy positions that you can't necessarily agree with. But that wasn't, uh, that wasn't my job to, uh, to drive the, political, uh, the policy agenda. With that time that you spent there inside the tent, if you like, as opposed to being outside the tent, doing you-know-what in, um, was that a, a huge eye-opener for you about how it really worked and, and helped you in a regard to um, your, your years since in uh, interviewing politicians and knowing exactly where they're coming from and exactly how their minds are working? Yeah, it certainly, it certainly did work that way. You know, I had a big decision to take when I was invited to do that job because I worried that... Um, uh, that I might never get back into, certainly not political journalism, uh, into the future, because people would see that I was signing up to a political party, even though I've never been a member and never will be a member of a political party. I, I signed up specifically because it was Bob Hawke. And I just figured at the time that this guy was going places he would be, he would have a special place in history. I think I was right about that. And I did learn a lot. Um, 
whenever the difficult stories break, um, the, the, the difficult issues to deal with, I mean, you're there, you're in the office, you're part of the discussion, you get a sense of what uh, of how these things ought to be handled. And if you do that for four years, then right to this day, I feel I'm in a position where I can almost second guess what's going on in, in the Prime Minister's office at any given time. I know who they're talking to, what they need to do uh, to, to bring these sort of issues under control. And so the sort of standards that he set all the way back, um, those years, I, I, I think I can still apply. So even though it was a bit difficult for me having done that, and I knew the risks, and, and by the way, when I joined his office in September, um, September 86, he was six points behind in the polls, so there was every chance I was only there for a year and, and I'd be out. And then it would have been very difficult, I think, to, <laughs> to, to get to, to get reorganised in life. But um, luckily for me, he won that election and the one after, so I was able to leave, um, you know, with a reasonable record behind me. But um, yeah, it was it, wa- it was a tough decision to take, but I was prepared to take the consequences because I was, um, you know, quite frankly fascinated by uh, uh, by the prospect of getting inside and seeing how it all worked. One last one with your time with Bob Hawke. Did you learn how to neck a schooner like he's uh, shown so adept at doing <laughs> at the cricket in latter years? You know, the thing is that um, I probably drank uh, a whole lot more than he did. Um, he, he really he rarely drank, um, but when he did, uh, he drank fast, <laughs> real fast. <laughs> um, you know that when he did have that, uh, the broke the, the record, uh, they, they were he was 12th man for Oxford that day and they got rained out. And, um, and so they were discussing what they should do and, and whether they should go to a pub or, whether, or, or, or whatever. And somebody said, there's an athletics um, meeting um, just around the corner. And Hawkey said, nah, <laughs> let's go to the pub. And he persuaded them to go to the pub. And of course, at that athletics meeting just around the corner, some, some guy broke the four-minute mile. So <laughs> there you go, <laughs> Roger Bannister. Um, so he, he missed out on that moment because, uh, because of his passion for the pub at the time. <laughs> at the time. Mm. Back to general terms, why do politicians seem to be manufactured personalities? Um, because they're, they're so flexible and pliable, I guess, that they um, most of them have one idea, the opinion polls the whole time. So they try and walk a fine line. You see a sense of it now when you see both political parties, both Labor and, and the Liberals and the Nationals, trying to line up issues in Queensland against views in Victoria. And so they walk this fine line. Now, that's a kind of a metaphor for the much broader political process that we've seen this for as far back as I can recall, is that they're always walking quite a fine line and they're, they're way too conscious of how issues will play out in certain places. And so they lose, um, they lose their courage. They lose their sense of adventurism and they just shrink and, 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 and try and adapt their policy positions so they're not going to, so that they offend the least number of people. And, you know, it's, I, I think it's the more courageous politician who goes out there, puts their, their views on the line, the, the, the ones that should get the support. So they don't really believe in the notion of you can't please everybody. They genuinely try to please everybody. Yeah, not everybody but the majority. And, um, and in doing that, you know, I, I think there is a simple rule to apply, especially around some of the the hot button issues, the really hot button issues around, you know, immigration and refugees and even mining when it's jobs versus the environment or whatever, you just ask yourself, what is the right thing to do? 
and and you try and do the right thing rather than what is the clever political position to take. If I adopt this position, what is the one that will give most discomfort to my opponent? What's the issue that will wedge them? And there's so much of that goes on, especially over the last 10 years, that they go in search of wedge issues rather than just figure out what is best. And how is that based on? How is their opinion on matters such as that formed? Are they listening to image consultants, power brokers, the pressure from others in their party, is it that that is forcing mm-hmm. them into these corners? Yeah, I think it's it's that, that, that focus groups play too big a role now in the in, in the mindset of the politicians because they get fed all this material and it's as if they're, they're there to satisfy a, a focus group. But it also, I think, started back about 10 years ago when Kevin Rudd sort of changed the style of the Prime Minister of the day and he decided that every day was a separate political campaign to be won every day. And if you do that and you're out there every day campaigning, then policy takes a sort of a backseat. Or if it does, policy is fashioned so that it's popular and you're not taking the tough decisions. And so it's that, it's that kind of sense that every decision you take is going to impact on whether or not you get elected um, is, I think, what's, what's started to damage the system. And you, you had that. And then overlaying that, Tony Abbott arrives. And Tony Abbott's passion was to destroy things, to make sure that the other side wouldn't do things that offended him, like, for example, gay marriage or, or whatever, So he, or, or the Republic. Or, he, he was all about just making sure there weren't innovations just to pull those down rather than focus on something of his own, saying, this is what I want to achieve, this is where I want to take the country. Instead, he looks in the rear vision mirror and says, well, I see those guys behind me. I'm going to make sure they don't get the right of way. And, and that was entirely his focus, rather than just focusing on the road ahead and saying, no, this is where I want to take the country. How does a politician deal with internal conflict on issues? For instance, everyone's not going to be singing from the same hymn sheet within a political party, but say one politician says, oh, I do believe in climate change, but the the party line is, oh, let's hold off on this. We've got a differing view as to you. How do they deal with that on a day, just as a human being? Because in themselves, they believe it, but they've got to portray that they're part of this grander, grander ideal. Yeah. It's... It's, um, it's it's tough and, and, and this is where the personality of the, the individual and the strength of the individual has to come through um, because you have to have robust internal debates but the best leader then says, right, I've listened to all the points of view, I think I've got a sense of where this is headed and this is what we're going to do and a disciplined party then has to say, right, well, I accept that, I accept the majority view and I'll go with that. Um, now, that's... Um, that's almost a daydream these days. It, it's, it doesn't work that way anymore. Bob Hawke, Paul Keating and John Howard were all consensus leaders. Um, they would spend a lot of time listening. Paul Keating, maybe not as much, but <laughs> but they, they, they did spend a lot of time listening. They would sit around cabinet tables and they would say not very much until the end. And, and then they would make their contribution. And not just in the cabinet, I've, I've seen them operate with various um, groups with, with um, a variety of views on a particular issue. You know, you'd bring in the employers and the trade unions, or it might be the, the greenies and the developers or whatever. And you'd hear from them all, and then you would finally take a decision. 
now I think what you see is, um, and especially with the coalition in recent times, that they just won't accept majority view. Like with the national energy guarantee, and, and the energy policy has been the worst example of how politics has worked in this country for for ten years at least. But the National Energy Guarantee was agreed to by the Coalition Party Room three times and overwhelmingly. So clearly that was the view of the party. But there were seven or eight or maybe ten Coalition members who wouldn't abide it at any price. And so the threat they held over the party was that we'll make one hell of a fuss about this, we'll cross the floor. We'll cross the floor to stop you introducing this because we know the Labor Party will support you. And so rather than have this image of the the Liberal Party, rather than have the image of them, the majority of them sitting with Labor and then having 10 dissidents, they ducked the issue and decided to dump it. That was Malcolm Turnbull's approach. And um, and Malcolm Turnbull took that approach. He backed down to this, you know, hard-headed bunch of 10 dissidents or whatever and then lost the leadership anyway. Um, so it just shows you that you might as well, uh, you know, die on your feet and, and not on your knees because that's what happened here. The dissidents made energy policy a test of the ideology of the party and and they won. They won against the majority um, because of the threat that they posed. And, and, of course, Malcolm Turnbull paid the price. With... I mean, you've seen it um, firsthand. When, you, when a politician comes into your program and you're sitting there before and you're having a nice cordial chat and shooting the breeze... And then is there a, 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 a switch that flicks when the camera goes on, when you start interviewing them, they, they just become someone else? Yeah, we both flick that switch though. Like they, they come into the green room, as you'd expect, and they're guests, the guests of the program. And so the conversations are cordial on, on my part and on theirs and, and, and the panel are usually sitting around, you know, as part of that conversation as well. So of course we're all polite to one another, but but we both flick the switch, right? That's It's over uh, once the interview is on because then it's down to business and it, and it has to be professional. Um, some of them, though, I have to say, are kind of more candid and it's a shame that they lose that candour <laughs> the, the, the moment that the interview starts and then they so readily um, adopt the party line. And I, I think the biggest mistake that some of them make, they, they agree on talking points and they agree on a particular position and no matter where the interview goes, they stick with that. Like I had that experience with Kelly O'Dwyer when, when I asked her why they took so long to call a royal commission and she'd clearly been given her talking points. And when it became obvious that the talking points didn't stand up, it was just ridiculous. I mean, she really had to concede that they did take a long time to come around to the view that there needed to be a royal commission into the bank's so they need to have some kind of flexibility. They, they need to rely on their own common sense at some point and not just stick with the talking points. Who, who provides these talking points? Is it the, the actual leader of the party or those in charge of the party or backroom people that we never get to see? It's a bit of both. I, I know at times when um, you know, they'll, they'll workshop it with their staff, uh, they might talk to public servants about it, but then there are other occasions when, when the interviews are fairly important or there might be a big issue around it. I know that ministers take a call from the Prime Minister 10, 15 minutes before the interview. And I think it's the words of the Prime Minister of the day that might uh, that might really stick and that and they go into that interview with those thoughts in their mind. So they're, they're not going to vary from that position. And quite often I know this because um, they're escorted out of the building and they have their phone calls and a lot of them um, get calls from, um, and I'm not just talking Scott Morrison here, but previous Prime Ministers 
tend to call up within 10 or 15 minutes after after an important interview and and they give their uh, you know their their assessment it's usually a bit of a pat on the shoulder well done mm-hmm. <laughs> you were more than a match for him today you know that kind of thing um so they they do get their advice from a whole range of areas but uh, you know some of them I mean, when Paul Keating was was treasurer he wouldn't rely on a conversation with Bob Hawke before he went on and did an interview he would uh, he would have it pretty much sorted out for himself far out it, it sounds like these politicians that they're consistently worried about what people think of them. That's a, that's no way to live, is it? Yeah, but it's true though. They, um, because you know, it's democracy. They're answerable to the public. But I just think sometimes they confuse, you know, popularity with the, with strength. I mean, it's one thing to say things that are that are popular. But it's another to impress people through strength. And, you know, I thought John Howard was good at that, that uh, he would take unpopular positions at times and just say, well, that's not my position and I'll tell you why. And, and he would argue, you know, when he introduced a GST, now imagine that now in, in, in the environment of politics today, trying to introduce a tax as broad as the GST, I just don't think they would have a, a snowball's chance. But John Howard did it from, uh, and he went into an election with it, by the way, um, so I think that kind of thing is is rare, but it just shows you what the country rewarded him for at the time was not that what he was doing was popular, but they, they were impressed by his determination mm. and his strength. And, you know, that's a lesson for all of them. Do you notice um, changes in politicians uh, when stakes get higher? And when I say that, it's not just in terms of what they're saying, it's how they're acting as well. Yeah, some of them can take the pressure and some can't, you know, recent examples of that. But uh, Josh Frydenberg is a politician who can take the pressure. He, he remains calm. You know, there's nothing, his personality, his presentation never changes, no matter how tough the questions, um, no matter how easy the questions, it's, it's pretty much a level, uh, a level performance from him. He, he's one person. Then you watch Q&A occasionally and you see some of these uh, more junior politicians when they come under a bit of pressure and they start shouting, they start saying silly things um, because they can't, actually deal with um, with the pressure. That That's what it is. So it, it really does vary according to the politician. Like take Michaelia Cash, for example. Now, you compare Michaelia Cash with Josh Frydenberg. Um, when, when she's talking electric cars and he's talking electric cars, <laughs> you, you get a very different presentation. You know, one is just totally over the top and silly because that there's no credibility. That, um, that there's an, it, it might be authentic. I'll, I'll give her that. She probably believes her stuff. Um, but it's not credible, and whereas um, a, a character like a Frydenberg um, just knows how to deal with these things. You know, some people might say, well, he's a touch on the boring side. Well, I, I think the more measured approach is, uh, is more impressive than, than those who think you can go with the highs and the lows. Well, yeah, well, he's not there to come out with a budget paper and uh, on a unicycle juggling three balls at once, is he? He's, he's, he's there no. to deliver something that is <laughs> essentially a pretty boring document and, and put light and shade on it. Um, yeah. Do they get guided in terms of how they're meant to act or are they basing themselves in the public eye I'm talking about now, are they basing themselves on their, their own personality and they're, they're just left to find out where it takes them? Yeah, I think they're better off doing the latter, but a lot of them do um, do media training. They get advice from basically rank amateurs about how they uh, how they ought to perform uh, with the media. You know, at the end of the day, the key word in all of this is authentic. I mean, just be yourself. That's the best way to go. And, and you know, they over-practice, a lot of them, and you know when they've over-practiced because they're just like robots. 
they are better off um, just not writing down a note, not reminding themselves of anything and go in and take their chances. And if they're any good, they'll pull it off. If they're full of ego, which can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing. Yep. But if they're full of ego, does it does it actually help them in the grand scheme? Because that's how they, they naturally act, that they, they believe in themselves to an extent where it looks like they've got a massive ego, that that is actually not a bad thing for a politician? Yeah, like I said before, if you go into politics, you've got to have a reasonable ego to begin with to think that you can, um, you can handle all of the demands that come upon you and leadership in particular. I mean, imagine how the self-belief that must come with anybody who puts their hand up and says, I can be leader of the opposition or I can be prime minister. Enormous self-belief because it's such a, uh, it's, it's a job that with so many pressures, um, it's so demanding, both in times of travel required, the, 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 the hours you've got to put into it, but also getting your head around just about everything. A hell of a task. And so, you know, to do that, to think that you're capable of doing that um, does require an ego, but then look at some of the, the leadership aspirants. Uh, by that, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're you know they're out of control and that they fancy themselves um, um, you know beyond the pale. I'm, I'm not suggesting. You, you look on the Labor side, the sort of leadership contenders, people like Chris Bowen, Tony Burke, Tanya Plibersek. On the Labor side, probably Josh Frydenberg. The, the field's getting a bit thin on that side now in terms of leadership aspirants, except for Tony Abbott, of course, um, <laughs> and. They're not people who, in my view, have tickets on themselves, right? They are just, they're quality people. They've got lots of skills. And I think it's reasonable for any one of those people to aspire to the prime ministership. But there are others who have an inflated sense of their own abilities. I saw it firsthand recently when I was at the races in terms of a, a politician and dealing with something that they plainly didn't want to hear, but just brushing it off. I, I couldn't believe my eyes when um, I was at the races and the national anthem players, the Prime Minister of the time, Scott Morrison, standing there, listening to it all. Uh, the crowd quells after the national anthem, after the applause dies down, and one punter from the outer, about 100 metres away, and everyone on the race course heard it, told Scott Morrison to F off. And you could see the, you well, could see Scott's face. He goes, "I heard that, but you know what? I don't care. <laughs> I'll just get on with what I'm doing and smiling and waving and appealing to the masses." And it's it, I don't know how I don't know how that happens as a human being. Yeah, look inside they do care, and it's, I, I think politicians have got to be careful about how they handle sporting events because if they're genuinely into that particular sport, then I think people accept them being there. But I, but I recall with with Bob Hawke, we had a problem because he would present the AFL Cup, and no matter you know where the popular where, where he was in the popularity stakes, people kind of resented that he was part of the grand final, and he would walk out to present the cup, and he'd be booed. And he said, "What, what, what are we going to do about this?" Because he didn't find a particular pleasant experience. We came up with this idea where, um, and this is how far this goes back, but back to the 80s, early 90s, where Bob Hawke would uh, identify somebody to the AFL who he thought should present the cup that year, and he would simply walk out with that person. Now, look at the cover there, right? How clever is that? You walk out with, Ted Whitten was the first person that we nominated. So he walked out with Ted Whitten. He's not going to be booed that day. <laughs> so, um, so we got away with that. This idea that the Prime Minister would then nominate the person who presented the cup died after two or three years and the AFL took it up. But that's, that's how we found a way around that problem. So I just tell that story to demonstrate that no matter who you are or how popular the Prime Minister of the day or whether they're into sport or not, um, that sporting people don't like it when they think that the politicians are simply jumping on the bandwagon to get a bit of uh, bit of the glory. You're a Collingwood fan, yeah? I am. Yeah. Did you ask 
Mr. Hawk, that you could maybe do the duties in 1990 when they finally broke that uh, long drought? <laughs> or had those days gone in terms of him nominating by then? No, but I, I recall that I, I did say to him at the time, look, I can't sit with you um, on grand final. I've got to go and sit somewhere else. Um, <laughs> it, it wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't serve the, 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 the image of the Prime Minister to have me sitting next to you on grand final day. So <laughs> I, got, I got a leave pass for a few hours. Fair enough. Understandable <laughs> as well. You would have been going through a bit. Um, Another one question about ego. What's bigger? Okay, the hole found in space recently—that black hole—or <laughs> the ego of a politician who is a massive fan of himself or herself? Yeah, I, I can see the comparison you're trying to draw there. <laughs> um, look, there are some politicians who are in that category, and they really do. I mean, they they just can't get a, a grip on on their own limitations. But one thing about politics, um, it doesn't take long for those limitations to become obvious. <laughs> Has it got worse in terms of politicians' behaviour and in relation to their own personality and diverting from that? Has it got worse or better as time moves forward? I think what's got worse is is this um, sort of insane focus on uh, on the sort of almost three-year campaigns now, that they feel the need to win every day, that... You know, there was a time when they just took a step back and they ran the country. You know, they spent a lot of time in their office. They spent a lot of time talking to people who mattered and getting things done. Ministers would come forward with great ideas and then everybody would sit around and they would introduce them. Now, they just, every day, they just put on these silly jackets and and, and the hard hats and they find somewhere to go out and just wander around meaninglessly, getting in people's way and, 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 and spinning the yarn. And it just, it's a shame that it's come to that because... They're losing the focus. They're, they're, they're not spending enough time doing what they should be doing and they're simply running the country. So the age of celebrity has got in the way a bit, has it? Yeah, that's that's an interesting topic too about the celebrities. I mean, maybe it's the politicians now who who fancy themselves as celebrities. They certainly seem to enjoy the media more than they ever did in the past and that's a bit of a trap. It's a bit of a trap uh, for some of them. But the, the whole idea of celebrity politicians as well, I mean, that hasn't worked out well. But people say, but come on, in, independents are starting to do really well. And they are, but they're not the celebrity independents. You know, the biggest mistake they can make is to say, this person is a celebrity, I'll put them in there and make them an independent. The best independents are people who, who have a, um, a reputation within the electorate, but not as a celebrity, but as somebody who's made a real contribution, you know, sort of a hard worker. And they're the people who um, who tend to come through, not not the um, not somebody because they're they're well known because of a television program or a sporting prowess or whatever. I'm going to end this by your least and your best. So you, <laughs> the <laughs> the one politician that you look at and go, you are so far away from what you actually believe. It's not funny over your time that you've seen. Um, if you can drop a name for us, that'd be great. Well, the the worst. I'll just put it this way. I think. The egg boy hit his target pretty well, and good luck to him. <laughs> I mean, when that when that guy chose a politician to egg, um, he 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 showed tremendous judgment. <laughs> he, he he may have been on the, the the brink of breaking the law, but there you go. He's only seventeen. Um, yep. So good on him. Um, you know, the best, and I've, I've seen some some really good operators over the years, and um, I just need to put politics aside here because um, um, I think both there, there was a period that ran from Hawke through Howard, uh, through Keating and then Howard, uh, where the leaders led, they genuinely led, showed very good political judgment. I know people on either side of politics will then say, oh, yes, but this person, you know, did this, it offended me and, and, uh, and you know, they were less than honest about other things. But I think that was the period when... Um, 
um, when Australia had genuine leadership, and that's why they lasted for as long as they did. Barry Cassidy, it's been a fascinating chat. Much appreciated, and thank you for your time on Peacock Politics. Uh, pleasure, Adam. Thanks. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.